0: Welcome to the Addison Street Community Church Podcast. Our mission is to be a community of believers proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ through worship, discipleship, and service. Our prayer is that you are transformed by the word of God in the following message. And we trust you are using this podcast as a supplement to your participation in a gospel church near you. Let's now hear what God has for us. You have a Bible, either a physical Bible on your lap or a cellular Bible in your pocket. I want to invite you this morning to meet me in the letter of Jude, and in verses 17 to 23. The letter of Jude is right towards the back of our Bibles. Find the book of Revelation, scroll back one page, and you'll be at this short letter that we call Jude. We're in the third of our four weeks on this short letter, uh, and This is one of the most neglected sections of our whole New Testament, so I'm glad that we've spent a few weeks here. And as we come to these verses, in verses 17 to 23, I want to invite you to pay special attention to one thing, and that is the particular groups of people that Jude has in mind in these verses. Who are these different groups of people? How do they relate to one another? If you're taking notes, I want to tag this text, Contend with Compassion. Contend with compassion. Verse 17. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions. Worldly people devoid of the spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, could it be this morning that we encounter you through your word? You have met us time and time again in this word, and so we pray that you would open up our ears, that we might hear you, that you would open up our eyes, that we might see you, and that you might soften our hearts, that we might receive the word of God with meekness, and that it would bear fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, even 100-fold, all for the glory of your Son's name, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, I wonder if you've ever been so worn out by a friendship in your life You've been so worn out from the fighting that you thought it'd be better just to give up on the relationship altogether than to keep fighting. Whether you've experienced this or not, my guess is that someone in your life, someone you're close to, has experienced this reality. They're so sick of fighting, they're so worn down, there's so much uh, contentiousness in the relationship that they think it's better just to walk away from this friendship than to keep duking it out. These are sad realities. We as human beings, we were made for shalom. We were made for God's peace. And when you exist in a space that is so full of tension, so full of fighting, and this is the only thing that you're used to, it's easy just to walk away. It's a sad reality, but my guess is that someone or some relationship is coming to your mind. Well, here's the question. If, if this is true for human relationships, if this is true in our interpersonal relationships in life, could this be true about someone's relationship to the local church? Could this be true about how someone relates to the body of Christ? You know, everyone has a relationship with the body of Christ. Everyone has a relationship, positive or negative, with Christ's body. And the question is, could someone experience so much fighting in a church So much tension, so much antagonism that they think it's better just to walk away from the church altogether than to keep fighting day in and day out with these people who call themselves Christians. If it's a sad reality to have this kind of tension with human relationships, how much sadder is it it if someone walks away from a relationship to the body of Christ? The church, too, it was made for shalom. Shalom. It was made for the peace of God. We're not meant to live in a church that is full of antagonism. And I think, again, we might know people who've walked away from a relationship to the body of Christ on the basis of disunity. So we don't want that. But at the same time, the whole reason why Jude is writing this letter is because he wants the church to do what? To contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So on the one hand, we don't want to be antagonistic, contentious. On the other hand, Jude is saying, look, you've got to contend for the gospel that was once for all delivered to the saints. So here's the question. How do we do the thing that Jude's telling us to do, namely contend, without being contentious? We need to do both. We need to contend or else we don't exist as a church. We simply exist because we are a gospel-centered church. This is the way the church has always existed. So how do we contend without being contentious? I think Jude wants to give us a simple principle this morning, a simple maxim of sorts, and it's this, that a contending church is not a contentious church. This is the maxim. He says, you can take this to the bank. Here's what we need to know about the church of God, that a contending church, the thing that we're supposed to be, is not a contentious church. If we give up on contending for the gospel, we shoot ourselves in the foot. There's no more church. There's no more gospel to to keep us alive. But if we're so antagonistic, if we're so divisive in the church, we're also gonna shoot ourselves in the foot because a house divided against itself cannot stand. So you you say, okay, what's the difference between a contending church and a contentious church? A contending church fights for something. They, They stand for something. Whereas a contentious church is always against everything. They're just looking, what can we be against? A contending church promotes the gospel, but a contentious church forgets about the gospel because they're so consumed with fighting one another. A contending church, it's full of brotherly and sisterly love. There's joy, there's affection, there's warmth in the fellowship. But a contentious church, it turns friends and family into enemies. It turns the people that we should be hugging into enemies. Finally, a contending church is on mission. A contending church knows why it exists. It lives for a purpose. But a contentious church, it's one of the fastest ways a local church can die. So if we don't get this right, do you you see the risk already? If we confuse contending with being contentious, we'll actually miss out on our whole mission. So you might say, okay, Eric, that's a nice little maxim, you know, a contending church. It's not a contentious church. But what does this actually mean? How do we actually live in this tension and in this balance? Well, in order to contend for the gospel, Jude as we've established, the half-brother of Jesus, I think he wants to give us three final words. Three final words about three different groups of people in the church. And here are the three words. This is how we're gonna trace a line through this text. He first says, remember, and then he's gonna say, remain, and then he'll tell us to rescue. Remember, remain, and rescue. And here's how we'll spend the remainder of our time. Well, his first word is about ungodly church people, And the word is remember in verses 17 to 19. Look again at our text. But you, beloved, but you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions. Worldly people devoid of the Spirit. We'll pause right there. This is Jude's final word about the ungodly church people. Now, think about this. The word that he uses is very, very, very surprising. The word remember. Why? Because look, look at the types of ways that he describes these people. Verse 4, they're people who pervert the grace of God. Verse 4, they deny our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. They're blasphemers, according to verse 8. They're ungodly people. He says four times in verse 15. They're divisive with their tongues. They're slanderers. They're loudmouth boasters. They're greedy, all according to verse 16. They're scoffers, according to 18. They're people who cause divisions and 19. They're worldly people, and they're devoid of the Spirit. This is the kind of people that he's writing to the church to say, you need to contend with these kind of people. Now, if you are Jude, and you're writing to a church where these people were in their midst, is the first word that you would say is just remember? Wouldn't you be tempted to say, hey, get the local authorities involved, get the politicians involved, get them kicked out of the church? Do something extreme to them. Isn't it surprising that the word he gives is simply remember? Remember what? He says, remember the words of the apostles, those who were commissioned by Jesus Christ. I think here Jude is referring to 2 Peter in chapter 3, verse 3. Uh, I'm not positive. We're not positive if if he's quoting Peter or if he's quoting another apostle. The point doesn't really matter. Because the point is, just remember what the apostles told you. Whether it's Peter or another apostle, remember what they told you. They told you that this was going to happen. You shouldn't be surprised. You knew it was happening. So the question is, why does Jude give, give this word as the final word about these ungodly church people? He spent the whole of the letter pretty much talking about what they do. Why is it that he chooses to say, remember? Because if they forget they won't contend for the gospel. If they forget what their task is and that this is going to happen in their church, then they're just going to give up on the task altogether. They're going to be caught flat-footed if they realize all of a sudden the things that they should have remembered all along. And brothers and sisters, so it is for us. The Lord this morning would have us remember that in every age there are ungodly church people who pervert the gospel, slip into the church, and seek to cause divisions in our midst. I really do think that Jude would subscribe to the maxim that forewarned is forearmed. We are are warned about these things that are going to happen, and that is to our advantage. Now, within the church, the true church, those who love the gospel, those who love Jesus Christ, there's no contention. There's no contentiousness. He's saying, you got to get this right. With the ungodly church, people just remember that they are coming. So contending church, it's not contentious. It's simply a a remembering church. So let us too be forewarned, lest we be caught flat-footed when these these types of people try to lurk in. Let us remember that at Christ's return, and until then, there will be false teachers, ungodly Christians who pervert the gospel for their own sensuality. They will be trying to get into the church until Christ returns. Well, this is the first word. Remember, it's about the ungodly church people. But here's the question. Does Jude have any parting words for the mature Christians, for those at the church who actually are contributing to the mission of Jesus Christ? Well, that leads to the second word, which is remain. And this is a word about those who are strong in faith in verses 20 and 21. Look again at verse 20. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, and praying in the holy spirit keep yourselves in the love of god waiting for the mercy of our lord jesus christ that leads to eternal life these have to be this has to be one of the most stunning sentences in the new testament two verses one sentence isn't it amazing just in terms of frank application how how wide of a scope he has in mind here now you'll notice in these two verses There are three verbs in the gerund form or the ongoing form, and there's one in the imperative form. There's one command, and there's three verbs that are expected to continue, that they're supposed to continue to do. Now, I think the point that Jude is trying to make here is this, keep. This is the word he's really concerned with, keep. Keep yourselves in the love of God. In the three other words, the gerund form, the ongoing form, I think, are the way in which we keep ourselves in the love of God. The three words are building, praying, and waiting. Building, praying, and waiting. So first, building. He says, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. This is the same faith that he says you're supposed to contend for in verse 3. Contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And here he's saying, build yourselves up in the faith, in the gospel. So you, you say to yourself, what does this mean to build Myself up in the faith. It sounds nice, but it's kind of a conceptual idea, building ourselves up in our most holy faith. Well, let's start here. No matter what neighborhood you live in, in the city, we all have one thing in common, no matter where we live. There's construction happening all the time, everywhere we look new houses, new condos, new retail shops, there's always construction going on. And we can learn a lot about building ourselves up in our faith simply by looking at the master builders in our city. Have you ever seen a condo built by uh, you know, skill, skilled men and women who simply build one day a week? That thing would take forever to complete, especially skyscrapers. You ever seen a skyscraper downtown and people are only out there one day per week building that building? You don't see that. It would never get done. You'd lose all momentum. It would never be complete. And so it is for us in, our, in building ourselves up in the faith. If we only build one day per week, we're never going to build anything strong, anything worth building. It's going to face setbacks. People are going to start wondering, what are you guys even doing over there? It's taken you seven years to build something that took was supposed to take one year. In our faith, we, we can't just build one day per week, be it Sunday or Friday or, or Wednesday. We need to build daily. The only thing worse than relegating building a building to one day a week is to relegate it to one hour and 30 minutes one day a week. And, and that's the worst thing that we could do with our faith is say, for one hour and 30 minutes on one day a week, I'm going to build myself up in the gospel. Good luck. You're never going to build anything worth enjoying if that's how we build up ourselves in the gospel. So to build ourselves up, we need to build methodically. We need to build daily. We need to build wisely. We need to build patiently. This needs to be the way we approach building ourselves up in the gospel. And I wonder if that's a a reproof to anyone here. It is for me. It's it's tempting to look at pastors as, you know, professional Christians and say, you're supposed to do this every day. But even for me, it's a a convicting thing to say, this is something we're supposed to be constantly and methodically building day in and day out. I simply ask you, is that reflective of, of your faith? Is that reflective of how you're building yourself up? So so then you ask, okay, I'm convinced now that we got to build more than one day a week, more than one hour, 30 minutes a week. But what exactly are we supposed to build with as we think about building ourselves up in our most holy faith? The short answer is the ordinary means of grace. The ordinary means of grace. The ordinary means of grace have extraordinary power. And they have an extraordinary track record for being great tools, great building blocks for strong Christians. These are, these are the things that if you look at someone, you say, that's a real man of God. That's a real woman of God. I almost guarantee you, they use these five building blocks first. Fellowship. Fellowship. Christian friendship. This is the first building block for building ourselves up in our most holy faith, is rich Christian fellowship. These are gospel people, and gospel people help us build ourselves up in the gospel faith. Good friends in Christ are among the greatest blessings that God can ever give us. Christian fellowship. I know sustaining and building rich Christian fellowship is its time-consuming. Oftentimes, it's challenging. You might not even know where to begin. And if you feel like you're at a lack in your life of rich Christian fellowship. And I just encourage you to pray even now as we're looking at God's word, that he would give you not just one good Christian friend, but a family that you can have Christian fellowship with. That's the first tool, first building block. Second building block, the sacraments. The sacraments. God gives us baptism and the Lord's Supper as building blocks for our faith. When you come to this meal, do not come out of rote religion. Come knowing that this has the power to build you up in your faith. When you think about baptism, you say, how could that be a building block? Well, that's so foundational. That's, in some sense, the floor of your Christian obedience is to say, this water said that I used to be this way, and now I am in Christ. I am a new man. I am a new woman. These are practical. These are building blocks as we think about building ourselves up in the faith. That's the second building block. Third, prayer. We'll get here in a second as we look at the phrase praying in the spirit, so I'll just leave it at that. It's a solid building block, prayer. Fourth, meditation on the scriptures. Meditation on the scriptures. I intentionally didn't say scripture reading. It's not good enough simply to read the scriptures, but we need to meditate on them. We need to, uh, blessed is the man who meditates on the law of the Lord morning and evening and all day. We need to meditate on the scriptures Oftentimes, that will look simply like reading the word, but often it's storing it in our heart and meditating on it as we go about our day. You say, I don't don't like to read. Well, my guess is you read a lot of news or a lot of books that might not be the Bible or something else. So is it really you don't like to read or you don't like God's book? If you can't read, which that might be you, There are amazing audio Bibles out there that you can listen to when you work out and when you lie down and when you rise and when you walk by the way. These are things that are accessible to us. Audio Bibles. I commend Streetlights to you. I commend the Dwell Bible app to you. We need to be meditating on the scriptures because the scriptures are the manger in which the gospel lies. If we don't look at the manger, we're not going to find the gospel and we're not going to build ourselves up. That's the fourth building block, meditation on the scriptures. Fifth building block is service. This is how we build each other up in the the faith, and this is how, in the meantime, we also build ourselves up, is by serving our brothers and sisters in Christ. This is the gospel made flesh, so to speak. This is the gospel working itself out in the life of the church. If you give yourself to these five things methodically, Systematically, daily, I guarantee you, you grow as a Christian. You can take that to the bank. Come back to me in three months, say, for the last three months, I've pretty much consistently been giving myself to sacraments, fellowship, word, prayer, service. And if you can't say that you've grown, I don't know what I'll do, but I'll do something to make it worth it if you come back to me. These things work. You find yourself a mature Christian. And I guarantee you find people who use these five building blocks to build themselves up in their most holy faith. Here's the point. As we build ourselves up in the love of God, we keep ourselves in the love of God. This is one of the ways we just, we hang out in the love of God as we build ourselves up. Well, second, if that's the first way we stay in the love of God, then here's the second way, praying in the Holy Spirit, praying in the Holy Spirit. I wish I could preach a back-to-back sermon this morning and just do a sermon on this phrase, praying in the Holy Spirit. What a phrase. Let me try to draw some general conclusions about what this means, praying in the Holy Spirit. Here's, Here's how I think we should start. Praying in the Holy Spirit is prayer that is prompted by the Spirit, conscious of the Spirit, sustained by the Spirit, guided by the Spirit, and used by the Spirit. Let me just say a brief word on all of these. It's prompted by the Holy Spirit. The best advice, I, some of the best advice I've ever been given is a man who told me, anytime you feel the Holy Spirit prick your heart to pray, stop whatever you're doing and pray. Because how often do these, do these, you know, prickings come? Probably not as much as we'd like. So don't overlook them when they come. When it's prompted by the Holy Spirit, pray. This is, what, this is one of the building blocks of praying in the Holy Spirit. It's also conscious of the Spirit. We don't, we don't keep up empty phrases to some abstract deity who's not present. We, we must, in the balance of our mind, have the reality that God is always with us. He is for us. He's present with us. We need to be conscious of the Spirit. It's also sustained by the Spirit. I maintain that the highest ethic in the New Testament is the command that we pray without ceasing. Find me someone who who prays without ceasing, and I guarantee you, you find someone effective for the kingdom of God. Sustained by the Spirit, guided by the Spirit, according to the will of the Spirit, which is in which is revealed in the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. And finally, praying in the Holy Spirit is used by the Holy Spirit. God takes our prayers and applies them to his world to actually accomplish things for his kingdom. This is no empty religious experience. This is the tool God has used to press his kingdom forward, praying in the Holy Spirit. Brother, sister, do you know anything of this kind of prayer? Does this resonate with you? Is this how you would characterize your own prayer life? This is one of the key ways we keep ourselves in the love of God, is praying in the Holy Spirit. Now, I think we get a snapshot into some of these characteristics in the book of Galatians and in chapter 4. The apostle Paul writes to a church, he says, Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, Now, because God has sent his spirit to us and the spirit lives in us, the Holy Spirit cries out from within us to our Abba, to our father, to our daddy. This is what it means to pray in the spirit, is to cry out to God, to experience intimacy, joy, and wonder at the fact that he is our father. Praying in the Holy Spirit. This is how we keep ourselves in the love of God. Third and finally, the last gerund verb, the last ongoing verb is waiting. Waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Friends, good news. Mercy is ahead. Mercy is ahead for the church of Jesus Christ. The full experience of the kingdom will be experienced when the king returns. There's no other way that we could experience the fullness of the kingdom if the king isn't present. And mercy is ahead when the king is going to return. But at the same time, I intentionally overlooked something in verse 17 that's critical. In verse 17, Jude says, the apostle said, in the last time, these scoffers are going to come following their own ungodly passions. And now Jude is saying, look, these these scoffers are in your presence. The the apostle said, in the last time, they're going to come. And Jude's saying, now they're in your presence, as if to say what? Right now, we're in the last time. So Jude, on the one hand, he says, we're in the last time. This is the end of the ages. Ever since the ascension of Jesus Christ, he has ushered in the last time. Don't let anyone confuse you about that. We are in the last time. The apostles all believe that. But Jude also has a very balanced view of the end times. Because on the one hand, he says, you're in the last time. On the other hand, he says, we're waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Already? Not yet. Already, not yet. We're waiting for the king. And when the king arrives, he will arrive with mercy. All of the apostles have an eschatology, a theology of the end times that is balanced like this. So here's the question. What's going to happen when Christ returns? I think Pastor Will concluded this substantially and persuasively last week. Those who pervert the gospel and who do not love the appearance of our Lord Jesus Christ, will be raised to eternal conscious torment. You want want the doctrine of eternal conscious torment? I invite you to continue to read the letter of Jude. It's there, even in this short letter. Some will be raised to eternal damnation. Others will be raised, what does Jude say? To eternal life, to eternal life great news, good news, eternal life is ahead for those who contend for the gospel. And as we wait patiently for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, God develops character in us so that we're fit to enter into the joy of our master. So when we add these three things together, building ourselves up in our most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, what happens? We keep ourselves in the love of God. These are the ways that we keep ourselves in the love of God. Remain in the love of God. This is Jude's final word to those who are mature in faith. Is just, just chill out where you are right now. Remain in the love of God. This command is the secret to a fruitful life in God. It assumes, though, that we're already loved. Look again at verses 1, 2, and 3. Jude calls them Beloved. He says, you're loved in God. You're beloved in God the Father. And then what does he do? Verse two, he prays that love would be multiplied to them. And then verse three, he calls them what? Beloved. Do you notice here again in these verses, he calls them beloved twice? As if to say, the main thing I see about the church of Christ is that they are beloved in God. Remain in the love of God. You're already in it. This is a command." to enjoy the sweetest aspect of the gospel, the love of God. And this is not somehow disconnected from our task to contend for the gospel. It's not like some people can be loved by God. Other people can can contend for the gospel. He's saying, no, this is how we actually contend for the gospel is by remaining in the love of God. If we don't do this, we've lost even before we've taken the field. The love of God changes everything about our life in the church and the way we go about our mission. So I think Henry Nouwen is exactly right when he says, when we are securely rooted in personal intimacy with the source of life, it will be possible to remain flexible without being relativistic, convinced without being rigid, willing to confront without being offensive, gentle and forgiving without being soft, and true witnesses without being manipulative. If we remain in the intimate love of our Father, we can be all these things at the same time. We can contend without being contentious. We can fight for the gospel without having all of the infighting in the church that actually shoots us in the foot. This is the effect, I think, in this quote of a life lived in the love of God. This is how we contend for the faith without being contentious. Because we contend from a place of deep Love in God and for God. And by the way, I would be remiss to overlook the fact that we have such a great Trinitarian few verses here in such a short amount of time. We have praying in the Holy Spirit. We have kept in the love of God. We have waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we operate as a church the way we're supposed to, we enter into the life of the triune God. There's nothing sweeter than life in the Trinity. And by the way, Jude's words, they should carry a lot of weight because they're inspired by God, but he's also just plagiarizing his brother Jesus in John 15. Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. This is a command from our Lord, abide in my love. In these verses, let me ask you, does this sound like a contentious church? Does this sound like a fighting church? This is a constructive church, building yourselves up. This is a Christ-saturated church. This is a creative church and a compassionate church. This is the church that Jesus Christ designed. A contending church is an affectionate church that enjoys so much joy in its fellowship. I wonder if on Sunday mornings, the same neighbors who maybe you live by, they see you walking out to church around 10 o'clock and maybe one Sunday you come back and they ask you, We see you go to church every Sunday. What, what do you guys do week after week at, at church? You can answer, We build each other up in our most holy faith. We pray together in the Spirit, believing that God is there and that God is in us and God is for us and He's accomplishing things for His purposes. We pray in the Holy Spirit. We contend for the gospel. We hasten the return of our Lord Jesus Christ together. We wait patiently. Doesn't that sound delightful? Who would ever want to miss that? This is not a contentious church. It's a Christ-saturated church. Oh, that we might invest in each other the way that Jude has in mind here. Are you building? Are you building yourself up in your most holy faith? Are you praying in the Holy Spirit? Are you waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ? Do you want anything more in life than for Jesus Christ to return? It often proves to be such a helpful barometer for where our heart's at with Jesus Christ. Well, that's the second word. First word, remember. Second word, remain. The third word is probably the most important contextually, even though it might be uh, also surprising like the first word. Contextually, uh, the word is rescue, verses 22 to 23. And this is a word for those who are weak in faith. If 20 and 21 were for those who are strong in faith, and 22 and 23 are for those who are weak in faith, immature Christians. Let's read again. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. First group of people he has in mind, have mercy on those who doubt. Have mercy on those who doubt. What does this mean? I think the group of people that Jude has in mind are those people who are wavering under the influence of false teachers. Those who are wavering under the influence of those who have been perverting the gospel and teaching another gospel. They're maybe naive, maybe they're deceived, maybe they're ignorant. Maybe they have honest wrestlings with the gospel. They doubt. He says, don't contend with these people. Have mercy on them. Don't be contentious with these people. Have mercy, have compassion on them. The church needs to be a place of mercy for those who are honestly wrestling with the gospel. I wonder if our church is described that way, as a place of mercy for those who honestly want to come wrestle through the gospel and its implications. So Jude, I think he's giving us a warning. He's saying, don't confuse those who have honest doubts about the gospel with those who are perverting the gospel. Don't confuse these people. Don't confuse the weak with the willing. Those who really want to be stronger in their faith, they they don't will for themselves to be weak in the faith, but they are. Don't confuse these people. He's saying, don't become a heresy hunter. Don't confuse the person who, who doubts with the person who's actually a heretic. There's heresy hunters all over the place, friends. You go on YouTube, a heresy hunter will find something wrong with every preacher under the sun. Here's how you identify heresy hunters. They have no connection to a local church. They go around from church to church looking for something in the preacher to say that's heresy. They're not connected to a local church. They have no joy in their life because they're disconnected from the God of joy. They're the only ones who have the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, lest they actually be brought to the pulpit and everyone starts contending with what they're saying because God alone has perfect and pure speech. He's saying, don't become a heresy hunter. If you're a heresy hunter, can I invite you to chill out and stop doing that? Because it doesn't bring God glory. It doesn't bring God glory. The church is supposed to contend without being contentious. Let's not confuse those who are weak with those who are willing. Someone can find an issue with everything that a human says. They should because God alone is fully true. We are all riddled under sin. Oh, and by the way, you've received mercy, verse 2. And you're waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 21. So who are you, a recipient of mercy, to not have mercy on those who doubt? Second group of people, save others by snatching them out of the fire. This, I think, is a new group of people in Jude's mind. I think this is an exception to the immature Christian category. Because I don't think these are Christians at all. They're not weak Christians, but those who don't know Jesus at all. Those who appear to currently be under the judgment of God. I think this is a different group than those who are perverting the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a group to be distinguished from them. And he's saying, this deserves a full-blown frontal approach. Save them by snatching them out of the fire. Here's a great image of what it means to contend for the gospel. Take your bare hand, reach into a fire, and and snag someone out of there. You're going to get burned. It's going to hurt. But this is what it means to contend for the one who was crucified for us. Reach your hand into a raging fire and save those who are currently under damnation. Are we willing to get some burns as we contend for the gospel? Are we willing to reach our bare skin into some fires in the world and try to save people? Jude's saying, don't confuse those who need salvation with the worldly people in the church who are perverting the gospel. Oh, and by the way, I wanted to write to you about our common salvation, he says in verse three. I wanted to write about our common salvation as if to say, you're being saved, so who are you to not seek to save those who are in the fire? Again, you've received mercy, show mercy. You've been saved, so save others. Now, if you have problems here with the language of save others, by snatching them from the fire. Well, then, if I can put it bluntly, you have problems with the language of the text, but it shouldn't bother you in the same way that if you're out front at your house playing frisbee with a neighbor, your frisbee gets caught in the tree, and you use a shovel to get the frisbee down from the tree, and another neighbor comes out, and they said, oh, we saw you trying to get the frisbee down. How'd you get it down? And you said, the shovel. Well, you're attributing the work of the human to the work of the shovel. The shovel didn't get the tree down. The human using the shovel got the the frisbee down. In the same way, God uses human beings to save other human beings. Humans don't save other human beings. God saves human beings through the agency of other people. This language is actually consistent in the New Testament. God alone is savior, but he uses us to save other people. What What an amazing responsibility that is. Save others by snatching them from the fire. The last group, have mercy on others with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. I think Jude would put an asterisk by this last group of people. I think he'd put an asterisk. These might be some people that they know. He's saying you should have mercy, but do so with fear and trembling. Do so with a little bit of caution. Why? Perhaps these people are affected by the false teachers. Perhaps they vacillated between actually following Jesus and following someone who, who thinks they're following Jesus. Maybe there's some sort of reason that they should be extra cautious. Show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Jude's saying there's no such thing as cheap mercy. There's no such thing as cheap mercy. Don't be showing mercy to people who, who aren't actually in Christ. But if you're not convinced that they're out of Christ, then have mercy on them with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Don't confuse those who appear to be recipients of mercy with those who are overtly perverting mercy. Those whom God has brought into the church, let no one kick out. This is his third word, rescue. First, remember. Second, remain. Third, rescue. And again, I ask you, does this sound like a contentious church? Does the words that Jude has here, does this sound like a contentious church or does this sound like a compassionate church? The whole tenor here is one of love. It's not contentious, it's contending. He's going out of his way to say, don't treat everyone like the ungodly church people. This should be full of love and joy and fellowship. Well, those are the three words, remain, remember, rescue. And as we do these things, we contend for the gospel. We get our mission right. We get the thing that we're designed to do right. And the best news in all of this is that this is a church that is full of the triune God, full of the presence of God, full of the love of God and the mercy of God. This is a church that is so full of his salvation and his son and his spirit that we have to ask, who could possibly want to throw in the towel on a church like this? This is a church that has purpose and yet is so full of compassion. Brothers, sisters, we need to strive to be this kind of church, a church that no one would ever give up on because they see in our midst people who love each other and live on mission. Can I give a a very frank word of correction to maybe some people here? If, If you're a divisive person, if you're a contentious person, If you're a slanderous person, you gossip, you're you're constantly dividing people by your words, please stop. This is not the way the church was designed to be. People talking, slandering each other behind their backs, fighting each other. We risk people missing out on the glory of God in the church of Jesus Christ if we're contentious. But at the same time, as we are filled with compassion, we must continue to contend because God has entrusted us with the gospel that was once for all delivered for us, that we might extend it to others, show mercy to them, that they might experience salvation. Thank you for listening to the Addison Street Community Church Podcast. We hope you are encouraged by God's word and for more info, for joining us for a worship service, for taking your next steps with us, please visit ASCCChicago.org